Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, September 19th. Uh, my name is Doug Taylor. Great to have you with us tonight. Uh, we're going to start with Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 17. And the verse reads, and we'll get the uh, slide hooked up so we can see this. It's better a meal of vegetables and love is there than a fatted ox and hatred is with it. It's better a meal of vegetables and love is there than a fatted ox and hatred is with it. So as we generally do at the beginning of most of these Proverbs, I'll pose the question to you, what are the questions? What questions come to mind when you look at that verse that we would want to at least sort of get on the table to understand in order to figure out what in the world King Solomon is telling us here? It's better a meal of vegetables and love is there than a fatted ox and hatred is with it. What do you think? All right, Jim, is Solomon admitting a steak is better than salad? Very good question. Good question. Obviously, he's making some kind of a juxtaposition and comparison between the vegetables and the fatted ox, or he probably wouldn't have said that. Okay. And Janine, you've asked the question, is love all that matters? Yeah. Good question. What's, what is love doing there, and what's, what's that about? So, Jim, you've asked, isn't he telling us something obvious? Okay. Like, gee, yeah, obviously it would be better to have just vegetables in a loving environment than a really cool meal and hatred with it. Okay, good, Ray. Vegetables would have been a meal of poor people. Okay, very good point. And I think that's going to come up in our solution here. And Terry, thank you. Anything with hatred seems terrible. Yeah, obviously, he's King Solomon's trying to make a point about uh, a very undesirable environment. Okay, so again, I'm following uh, the work of Rabbi Moskowitz on this, and we're going to do four different interpretations on this particular verse. Uh, and I guess one more question that seems obvious, but we got to make sure we don't don't pass over the obvious too fast is um, why is the second better than the first? In other words, wouldn't you rather have the fatted ox? And we we as Jim said, it seems obvious. So what in fact is King Solomon trying to get across to us here? So the first interpretation we're going to do is according to the Me'iri. And according to him, the word meal here means a usual meal, like a meal you have every day and with the people that you're usually with, so friends. So think about your friends, the people that you like, the people you, you are friendly with on a day-to-day -day basis. So let's ask the question, how do you choose your friends? Because 
The second half is telling us that you have a meal and that hatred is with it. So we could ask, well, how does that work? I mean, you invited someone you hate to a meal? I mean, that's not something most of us would normally do. And the Meiri is interpreting this situation that we're talking about a meal that you have on a regular basis. So you wouldn't invite your enemies. So who's the friend that you have here? Or rather, who's the enemy that you're constantly inviting to your table? I mean, if we're saying that it's about a regular everyday meal, how do you end up with hatred going along with it? So Rabbi Moskowitz said like this. He said, friendships are made generally based on superficial things. For example, society people may choose friends based only on who is within their particular strata of society, like maybe they're part of the upper crust or somebody's part of the middle class, or maybe you choose your friends based on something like sports. So all your friends are into sports. Or maybe your big thing is business and you only associate with business people. And those are the people that you choose to be friends with. Now, among all these people, <clears throat> even though you may have something in common with them, there is also usually some kind of competition or jealousy. And the proof of that is that the people tend to tell gossip about each other. I mean, we see that happen in everyday life all the time. Or if a person's friends are based, say, on sports, uh, then they may try to beat each other or bet against each other as to whose team is better. Uh, and sometimes those things can start out and seem just very good-natured and friendly, and sometimes the competition gets really, really severe after a while. So Rabbi Moskowitz is suggesting that competition and jealousy really causes a hatred of the other person. So that's, that's what he means that there's a superficial way of making friends. Uh, but if you do that, you have to realize that there can be hatred and anger underneath that. Now, by contrast, when two people are truly friends, where they really relate to the soul of the other person, where they look for the goodness in the other person, some, someone where they, they don't sense those underlying negative emotions, that is a true friend. So he's saying people are looking for uh, superficial friends. Uh, an example, um, you go to a big celebration uh, or a big wedding where there's a beautifully big meal served uh, and the food is great. And a person says, boy, I'd really like to be friends with the guy that, you know, could afford to put all this together. So there's a, a guy reaching for a friendship based on a superficial basis. Um, a guy that just has a meal of vegetables uh, may not look too good in comparison to the guy that can afford the very lavish meal. But it could be that that guy is really the true friend where there's no jealousy and there's no competition, and he's happy for whatever you have. And if you are extraordinarily successful, uh, say, in business, 
uh, and he is not, he'll be very sincerely happy for you. He won't be sitting there thinking, man, I wish I had a, you know, a house like his or a car like his or all that stuff. So you may be better off with him than with someone else as a friend. Okay, let me pause. Any questions on that interpretation? Okay, and Ray, you mentioned you're trying to impress uh, your boss with the fatted ox, but you might not like him. That's absolutely true. Uh, you know, you may be putting, putting stuff out there and trying to be friends with him because, you know, uh, it's, it's for some uh, almost subversive reason, uh, but uh, uh, it's not a true friendship. And, and Ray, thank you. I, I know that you are both logged in as Ray and in the reader uh, board of the comments, I can't tell the difference between the two of you. So my apologies if I uh, uh, implicate uh, comments from one to another. Jerry, you've asked, what if my boss is a fat ox? That is a separate problem that uh, we'd, we'd probably have to deal with in a separate proverb. Okay. The second interpretation of this verse is that it says that it's better to have a meal of vegetables and love there. Now, you'll notice that it doesn't say love for who. So the next possibility is that it's really talking about love of the self. A love of the self doesn't have to mean that the person is an egomaniac. It means a person who accepts himself for what he is and who he is. Now, there are certain people who do not accept themselves for what they are, and they're usually extremely jealous. Uh, and that can be what causes jealousy. You're not satisfied with yourself, and you think the other person has it better. So jealousy becomes a result of my not being content with my own life because I'm always looking at others and I'm always thinking, uh, they've got it better than I do. But if I were content with what I have, then I wouldn't have to look at others. So in this interpretation, he's saying that certain people strive for wealth the things that seem to make greatness or that show, but they're very unhappy. Uh, there's a discontent with the self, practically a hatred of the self. So it's better sometimes not to go running after the money, but to spend time undoing this idea and this emotion and learning to accept yourself with what you have and where you are. You're better off with that and having very little while the other person is running for the money and the big gains and all the areas of the materialistic. Okay, this gets to that um, uh, verse that we've talked about before in Ethics of the Fathers. Who is rich? He who is happy with his lot. A person who accepts himself for what he is, where he is, and what he has is incredibly rich because he's in a contented state. Okay, any questions on that interpretation? Okay, 
For the third interpretation, the Meiri quotes from the sages, and he says like this. He says that it's talking about giving to a poor person. It's better a meal of vegetables, and there's love there when he gives it to the poor person, than if he gives a fatted ox to the poor, and there's hatred there. In other words, we're talking about the uh, motivation or the emotion of the person giving something to the poor person. This third is to interpretation is where a person is giving to the poor, and so you've got two different ways that the person could do that. Um, and the Meiri uh, gives a story around this, not about the poor, but about honoring your father and your mother. And this is the story. He says, suppose a person, a certain person, gives his father an expensive duck, you know, a fowl. And his father asks, how did you get this? And the person says, old man, eat and don't talk so much. Don't be so friendly, just eat. So there's a situation where a son serves a father an expensive meal, but when he speaks to him, he speaks to him in a disgusting way. He's, he's disrespectful. Now, there was another guy. His son had a grindstone. You know, old-fashioned mill where they ground flour. And in those days, many times, the soldiers would come by and they would take food for the army. And one time, the soldiers came by and the son told the father, you work behind the grindstone so you won't be around and if they degrade anyone, or hit me, because they were soldiers, and apparently they would do such things, it's better me than you. So he's making his father work by the grindstone, but it's an expression of real honor for the father. He's protecting his dad. Okay? There's another story in the Talmud, uh, in Bava Basra, that says if you give money to a poor person, you get six blessings but if you comfort him, you have 11 blessings. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz asked the question, what do these stories have in common? So, there's a person that wants to give charity, but has absolutely no relationship with the poor person. He has an obligation to give charity, as we all do, but his attitude is, eh, don't bother with me, here it is, go, goodbye. You know? Or even further, maybe he actually degrades the poor person, like with the father at the meal. He puts him down in one way or another. So, if you give charity without being involved with the person, that's one level of charity. There is a second level of charity where you're actually involved with the person. You know his psychological needs. You try to comfort him. You deal with him as a human being, not just an object to give charity to. Or, in the case of the son having the father work the grindstone, you may be forced to do something to protect the person. Uh, and you need some thought in the situation as to what is a real protection or a real help for this person. That takes a certain amount of thought uh, when you start thinking about the person as a whole and what is actually going to be best for them. That's beyond just, okay, I grabbed my checkbook and I wrote a check, or I reached in my pocket and I gave some money. 
or maybe you have to evaluate the situation. That's real charity. When you give him just a little bit, but there's love there. There's consideration. Love means that you're taking into account his situation, his personality, what his needs are, what his environment is, what is going to be best for him. That's real love. So it's better, he's saying, to do that than the other way, which is if you just give him an ox, but you don't look at the whole situation, or you give him a big meal, but you degrade him, and you don't take into consideration his psychological needs, that's not love. Uh, you're giving, but you're not even really doing a really good thing. So that's what the verse is saying, that there's actually hatred there. You, you know, the person despises the poor person. And so it's sort of like, yeah, okay, here I gave you this thing, but, <clears throat> you know, I'm different than you. Uh, so uh, it's all about how you go about giving charity in this situation. Okay, any questions on this interpretation? Okay, the fourth interpretation is Rashi. And Rashi says that there was a sacrifice that the poor gave that was very, very little, which is represented in this verse by the vegetables. And then sometimes a person would sin, and he would bring a big ox for a sin offering. So he says that it's, Rashi's saying that it's better to relate to God sincerely with a little bit, where you love God and you give him a little bit, than to give an ox, but where your attitude is like it's an obligation. You're just fulfilling an obligation. Okay, here, I gave the thing, you know, now I'm done, right? Or, you know, like certain people who will give charity so that other people will recognize them. That's not a love of God. Okay, you're not doing it because of God. So there's almost a certain, it can be a certain hatred toward God. You're turning away from God. You're not doing it because of God. You're doing it for other reasons. There's an ego reason, or I want people to like me, or I want to look good in the public eye, or whatever it might be. So that's the fourth interpretation of the verse. So Rashi's talking about uh, your relationship with God in terms of um, bringing certain offerings. Now, all these four interpretations have something in common, and that is that the world looks at things superficially. In choosing a friend, people look at superficial things and will pick people based on, on superficial things. Uh, in considering what they think is important for themselves, they may try to be successful only because they're jealous of other people. In giving charity, uh, people think that the more you give, that that's better. Uh, and that the more is the most important part. It's a very superficial view. Uh, and also with God, a lot of people relate to God in a very superficial manner. But there has to be a deeper view of things. So, for example, when you choose a friend, you need to look at the depth of the person. Is he or she competitive? Could the person hurt you? 
Is the person a real friend who will stick by you in real trouble, or will he stick by you only when you have wealth? Uh, is it someone who would, you know, care about you enough to give you some uncomfortable feedback about your own behavior if they thought it was the right thing to do? All these kinds of things are things that you would want to look for. And the same thing with regard to ourselves. I have to figure out what is important in myself. You have to figure out what is important in yourself. Is it, is it success and beating other people, say, in the business marketplace? Or is the important thing to be happy and to accept yourself for who and what you are and to accept your situation? What's the most important thing and where do you want to put your focus? And similar things with regard to charity and how you give charity and with your relationship to God. So, let me tell you a brief related story about competition uh, and the attainment of material wealth. I used to be in the professional public speaking business. And uh, in one of the presentations that I gave to uh, a, a number of audiences, I asked people to stop and for a moment think about for them what is a peak life experience? Uh, uh, just something that happened to you that is like for you, the epitome of, like, it doesn't get any better than this in life. Uh, just a, a super experience that you enjoyed, you loved, was incredibly satisfying to you, and that if you had to look back over the experiences you've had, you know, that would be in the top handful of peak life experiences that you had. And so I asked him to think about it for a little bit. And then I ask some of the audience to volunteer and share their experience with the group. So some people, you know, were willing to, to do that. What was very interesting, and I knew this would happen from experience of doing it with multiple groups, that without exception, not a single person that I can recall ever articulated an experience that had anything to do with beating another person at something or about attaining any amount of money or any material wealth or material goods. Nobody named stuff like that. Not once. They, they centered, most of the time, the issues centered around a time when they really were able to help another person. Not, you know, check writing for charity, but a situation where they were hands-on involved helping someone else, or they had a personal breakthrough of their own. So I would suggest that despite all the values that are pushed at us constantly by uh, television and radio and magazines and the internet and movies and all that, you have to figure out what's really important to you. Uh, and it's not necessarily what the world is trying to sell you. So that's why it's very important to think deeply about these things in terms of the way I relate to myself, the way I relate to friends, the way I give charity, the way I relate to Hashem, uh, and, and really get in touch with the important aspects of that and not get caught up uh, in the superficial. Um, I gave you four interpretations, the last of which was Rashi. The first three uh, were from the Meiri, 
uh, in the, uh, the first one was his own. Uh, the second, he quoted someone else, but did not say who it was. And the third interpretation he got from uh, different areas of the Talmud. Any questions on this verse? Oh, very good point, Jim. Uh, you've raised the question, why doesn't Solomon just say, sincerity is better than superficiality? Is he trying to help us internalize it? Yes, I think that is the answer. Uh, part of the uh, book of Proverbs is the process of extracting out from Solomon's statements what it is that he's actually trying to get at. And the sheer process of going through that and trying to ask questions and understand, well, why did he say that? And why didn't he say this? And, well, I've tried that idea, but that doesn't fit with the second half, so it must be something else. And it seems like, you know, why didn't he just tell us, like, straight up? But uh, that wrestling with the ideas, first of all, teaches us to ask questions and teaches us to be able to... Um, differentiate one idea from another and help us to uh, train our minds in clarity of ideas. That process is part and parcel of learning the ideas themselves. Um, it, as part of my work uh, in, in uh, my day job, uh, I sometimes do project management trainings. And we uh, make those trainings, we don't use a PowerPoint, uh, we use some flip charts, and a lot of audience exercises. So it's very experiential. And we took the group through a process to teach them a particular principle. And a person wrote uh, either in an email or in one of the reviews afterwards, it would have been easier for us if you just told us what the, the point was, but I realized that I wouldn't have gotten it to the degree that I did if you'd done that. So I think the same holds true here. If he uh, just wrote sincerity is better than spirituality, we'd probably or superficiality, we'd probably read that and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But by kind of wrestling through the various cases and looking at how that actually works, it helps us to internalize and inculcate that idea into us more than if he just kind of wrote the bottom line. Uh, yeah, college kids saying, why don't they just tell us what they want us to know? And, you know, part of that is because the process of digging it out is really, you know, the key process of, of learning. This is also true with the Talmud, which is why just picking up a volume of the Talmud and opening it up and saying, oh, the Talmud says this, is not the approach. It's uh, virtually impossible to understand the Talmud without a teacher because the sages wrote very cryptically. And there was a reason for that crypticness. Uh, and part, a lot of the training in Talmud is to learn how to take a cryptic phrase and ask the right questions and do the right idea uh, separations and, and essentially break it apart like a mathematical problem and figure out, okay, he said this because of this, but this won't fit, so it has to be this other idea. And you, you end up working through it almost like kneading bread dough. Um, and so, uh, yes, Janine, as you say, wrestling it out uh, is better. It takes more time, but that's where the real learning is. Uh, real learning doesn't come from sitting and having somebody tell you over ideas. 
uh, or almost anything, learning comes from really wrestling through it. As we've discussed, I think, in, in previous classes, you know, if you needed to learn plumbing or ice skating or a martial art, uh, you know, or how to put on a roof, you could watch a PowerPoint or uh, listen to somebody talk to you all day about those things, but you wouldn't really start to learn it until you strapped on the ice skates and got out on the ice or got up on the roof and started hammering the tiles in or started, you know, learning how to do a sidekick uh, in a martial art. That's when you really start learning because you're wrestling and interacting with it. Uh, unfortunately, much of our educational systems are based on the idea of one person stands up in front of a room and basically talks to 30 people who are supposed to listen and take notes and somehow absorb the ideas. But that's very passive and there's no real interaction there. The real learning starts to happen when those students take those ideas and start questioning them and wrestling with them and maybe firing back questions to the teacher and saying, wait a minute, you just said this, but that doesn't work with that. And what about this? And I don't understand that concept. And pretty soon now there's an engagement going on and it's that engagement that starts to really make the learning stick. So that is my understanding of why King Solomon did it uh, the way that he did it. Okay, any other questions? Okay, uh, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 18. And the verse reads, An angry man stirs up quarrels, and a person that is long to anger, he quells quarrels. An angry man stirs up quarrels, and a person that is long to anger, he quells quarrels. So, Jim's already ahead of me and knows I'm going to ask what are the questions. Does he stir them up intentionally? Okay, and I'm going to suggest that the answer is yes, at least uh, the guy in the first half. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about why, but it's a good question. Does he stir up uh, quarrels intentionally, or does that just happen? What other kinds of questions can we ask? Why does he stir up quarrels? Does he just explode? Very good question, Janine. Good questions. Okay. And kind of what we're getting to on that is, what's the nature of this angry guy? What is, what is an angry man, and, and what is the nature of such a person that King Solomon's talking about here? Uh, and how does he stir up quarrels? Yes, we, why is he angry? Um, and the flip side of that is, it seems fairly obvious, but let's just put it on the table. What's a person who's long to anger? Ah, thank you, Jim. Does the person who is not angry just avoid quarrels, or is he helping stop other quarrels that are not involving him? Okay, and from uh, one of the rays, what is the temperament of the one who quells the anger? Good question. Good questions. Okay, so Rabbi Moskowitz said like this. Uh, Janine, good, thank you. What's the, uh, what's the right attitude towards anger? Excellent, we'll talk about that. There are certain situations in life that cause you anger. Okay, We all get angry. 
that doesn't make you an angry man or an angry woman. Rather, an angry man has within him an emotional anger that's built in. Uh, the sages say that when his anger comes through, it's like a dam breaking. He is just looking for a fight. That's an angry man. He has a tremendous amount of anger, and he's just looking for a situation to let it out. And you may have encountered some of these people uh, in your travels through life. Uh, if you start an argument with a regular person, okay, you might get him angry. But the angry person, he's looking for the fight. Now, when it says that uh, he starts quarrels, what he's saying is that, or what the verse is saying, is that the guy, the angry man, is interacting with the second type of guy, a regular guy. Uh, a guy who wouldn't normally start a quarrel or uh, someone who is, is long to anger. Uh, but in the case of a regular guy, he normally wouldn't get angry, but if you start a fight with him, well, that'll awaken his anger, and he'll get involved in the fight too. So, why does the second person get angry? I mean, we know the first person has anger, and we know he's looking for a fight. What about the second guy? I mean, the one that the, that the angry man starts up with. He doesn't have that much anger in him. So, what causes him to lose it when the other guy starts a quarrel with him? Okay. Now, let me pause. Uh, Amy, you said if an angry man stirs up quarrels intentionally, what benefit does he think he receives from it? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not certain that the angry man is necessarily looking for a benefit other than a way to vent out his anger. He's mad. He wants to take it out on somebody. You happen to be close by, and you look at him crosswise. Boom, there's a lightning rod, and he's going to direct some of that anger at you because he wants an outlet. That's my best guess. But the second guy, the one he starts up with, what happens there? So Rabbi Moskowitz said there are two possible reasons. The first is ego. So the first guy, the angry guy, hits the normal guy in his ego. And once your ego is hurt, then most of us tend to want to protect our ego. And so it's a little bit like, you know, if... Um, somebody walks into a room and walks up to you and uh, says something, then you might just say something back. But if they come up to you and the first thing they do is smack you across the face or hit you in the chin or slug you in the stomach with, without saying anything, most people's natural reaction will be to hit back automatically. And so that's what's, what uh, Rabbi Moskowitz suggests can happen here. When you get hit in the ego, then that really hurts, and people tend to want to protect their ego. 
Okay, the second reason that the, the person will start up with him is a security issue. A person needs a certain sense of security, and when he gets insincere or if someone takes away his security, he gets very, very angry. So here's a, a little bit of a, a distant illustration. You're in a war, and you have an enemy. You know who the enemy is. You hate the enemy, okay? And you're fighting them. But what if one of your own people turns into a traitor for the other side? That hatred, theoretically, now they've joined the enemy's side, that hatred of that traitorous person should be the same as the hatred of your enemy. But the hatred for a traitor is generally more so. People hate a traitor. Even the other side, the side that he turned to, will dislike him. I understand that when Benedict Arnold went to England, they didn't like him there. So why is that? Because he's a traitor. And why is a traitor hated worse than a regular enemy? Here's an answer. Yeah, Jerry, good point. No, no trust. And ever, I haven't missed your question. Let me come back to that. When you have an enemy, you realize who he is. And you realize you have to deal with him. And so in one sense, it's pretty clear. Okay, that guy or that country or that group or that society is my enemy. But when you have a friend, you have a certain sense of security around that friend. Now, when you fight the enemy, you have a certain insecurity around the enemy. You know they're going to hurt you. But around your friends, you assume they are you're safe around them. But suppose now all of a sudden, without warning, your friend becomes your enemy. So first you had security around him, and then he took that security away in the sense that now you don't know who to trust. And you wonder, gee, if I can't trust him, can I ever trust a friend? And even if I can, you know, it's not going to be the same trust that I had before because, gee, look, this friend turned against me. What about my other friends? So the traitor or the friend who turns into an enemy makes us feel very insecure. It's a greater insecurity than the person who I knew all along was an enemy. Okay, so they, they tweak that security that I had around myself or that illusion of security or that, that sense of security and they make me feel very insecure. It's kind of like uh, if, you, um, if you're in your house and you know there are um, you know, poisonous spiders outside all over your yard, okay? You get in your house and you feel a certain sense of security. You know, I've got these four walls around me. Okay, yeah, the poisonous spiders are out there, but they're not gonna get in. And all of a sudden you look down on the floor and you see a poisonous spider that somehow got in. Now what does that do for your sense of security? It becomes very, very uneasy. Like, wow, I can't trust anything now because they got in my house and I thought that was secure. Also, an angry person, going back to our, our proverb, an angry person is going to start a fight over a little thing. It's not going to be over a, a, a real thing because remember, he's looking for a fight. 
Now, in your mind, a little thing like that wouldn't be something that should start a fight. You know, it's like, ah, oh, it's just a little thing. In fact, you didn't feel that you did anything wrong. So that also gives you a certain insecurity. It's like, gee, you know, it was, I just said this little thing or I just did this little thing and the guy just completely unloaded on me. And so you had a sense that of security around a certain uh, elevation of things. And yet he came in and said, no, no, because you put your, you know, knife on the left side of your fork, I'm going to rag all over you. And you're kind of like, wow, this is just really weird. So that can also contribute to your insecurity, which can make you want to be angry back at him. And the insecurity could be any number of things. Could be a friend who just turned on you, uh, a situation like we just described where you're not expecting a fight, a number of situations that could give you insecurity. And once you have that insecurity, that continues the fight, and the angry man is happy because that's what he wanted to do anyway. And so that's, then the fight escalates into an actual quarrel, and now you're into all that. Okay. Uh, all right, any questions up till now? <laughs> yeah, Jim, you're right. Horror films abound. I never saw arachnophobia, but it, it uh, probably wouldn't appeal to me. Okay. Now, the person who can contain himself either has a good ego, and we're talking now about the person in the second half of the verse. The person either has a good ego, so that when you attack him, he doesn't feel broken, or he feels very secure, so that when you attack him, he doesn't feel that insecurity. So he doesn't need to react. Now, interestingly, what happens is an angry person who has a tremendous amount of anger has to attach that anger to something. And when the other person doesn't react to his anger, he can't attach his anger to anything in reality because the other guy doesn't see anything to quarrel about. And the other guy isn't getting angry. So the angry man doesn't have an outlet, and pretty soon he has to quit the argument. Now, there's a very interesting tangential point about how to deal with an angry person. And somebody, I think, asked this question, uh, or what's the right attitude towards anger? Well, it depends. Uh, you certainly want to avoid getting drawn into it because essentially what happens is, uh, and, and I, when I have um, people in a room, we, we sometimes illustrate this through a little martial arts analogy. So let me talk you through it and see if this will make sense. If um, a person walks up to me and throws a punch at my head, which is similar to, if you get the metaphor, an angry remark. And I take my arm and I put it up like this to block that punch coming to my head. The person has a lot of power coming my direction and I have a lot of power pushing back at them. And right about the middle of my forearm here, my arm is going to connect with their arm and there's gonna be a big clash of energy is moving in two directions and it's going to hurt. 
And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, well, I'm not going to let him hit me. And so while he's got his arm going for my head, I'm going to circle around and try to punch him in the gut. And he's going to see the punch coming. He's going to take his other arm and try to block that punch. Now we have another set of two energies crashing against each other, and it's going to hurt. And we're going to go back and forth and back and forth like that until one of us is bloody and on the floor. And it's going to be pretty painful. And that is often what happens when an angry person approaches us. You know, when somebody comes up to me and says, uh, you know, Doug, you are the stupidest person I have ever seen in my entire life. And I get my ego damaged by that and I say, I am not stupid. You know, you're kind of dumb for making a statement like that. And of course, then he comes back and counters with something else. And pretty soon, we're verbally going at it at a very high decibel level. And now crowds are starting to gather and it's getting rather entertaining. So the answer is, if you have a freight train coming towards you, what is easier? To try to stop the freight train or get out of its way? And I'll suggest that the answer is to get out of its way. In a martial arts analogy, if someone throws a punch at my head, if you are familiar with the martial art of Aikido, uh, you step aside, the person is committed to the punch, and so if I step aside, the punch is going to go right past my head, and I'm going to grab his arm, because he's got all his energy going in the direction of that punch, and I'm going to grab his arm and just roll him down to the floor and put a pin on him, and if it's done properly, it takes virtually no effort because you're using all the energy of the individual that is throwing the punch. The verbal translation of that is, if someone comes up to me and says, Doug, you are the stupidest person I have ever met, the key is to find something in what they are saying that you can agree with and then ask for more information. So the, the, the encounter might go something like this. A person walks up to me and says, Doug, you are the stupidest person I have ever met. And my response might be, well, you know, I do do some stupid things. Which particular stupid thing are you referring to? Now, I have not resisted his anger at all. And I have simply asked for more information. And he says, well, it's the stupid way you wear your beard. I mean, who in the 21st century would wear his facial hair like that? And I might say, yeah, you know, I've tried a bunch of ways to do this and I just don't feel like I've gotten it right yet. What would you suggest? Or something along that line. When I'm not resisting his anger, it's very difficult for him to keep it up. Because it's like, a, uh, it's like needing uh, something to push against. Uh, if I get my hand in the right place in the camera. If, if I'm trying to push against him and he doesn't resist, or rather he's trying to push against me and I don't resist, it's very hard for him to keep pushing because I just it's like pushing against water. There's nothing there to push against. So, yeah, Jerry, in a sense you diffused it. Uh, because it's tough for people to keep that anger up unless they have some, something to attach it to in reality. And if I'm not entering into the fight with him, 
it's tough for him to keep swinging. So, and yeah, that's how you deal sometimes with feuding families. It's how you deal with, with angry customers. Uh, it's just a, uh, uh, you know, the very, uh, can be one of the very best ways to deal with an angry person. Because as soon as you engage with them, you have lost. Because now they're in resistance to you, you're in a resistance to them, and you're probably going to end up kind of bloody on the floor. Okay. Uh, I want to go back to a divorce question. Does it take two to quarrel? Um, yes, if you're going to have a quarrel, I would say that it does, because it's very hard to quarrel with yourself, although I, I've probably been successful at that at times. Um, but... Generally speaking, yes, because if I'm not engaging with the person, then I'm not quarreling with them. If I'm resisting them, then I am. Uh, and so uh, if I can let that go and, and kind of take a, a non-resistant position so that they're like pushing against air, uh, makes it very difficult for them to keep up uh, the quarrel. A couple things I would add. Um, you've said anger often needs to assert itself. Uh, yes and no. When we have anger, sometimes we need to deal with it. I mean, certainly, I don't know of any of us that doesn't get angry. The key is what you do with that energy. Uh, and ideally, we work on our emotions enough so that we don't get angry. Uh, and we understand the reasons that cause us to do it, and we undo those emotions so that situations don't make us angry, like the guy cuts me off in traffic, uh, and, you know, it just really rankles on me. Um, and uh, I, you know, so I have to kind of do an analysis. Okay, there's a lot of traffic out there, so why am I bothering to get angry about that? You know, it's just, it's not even worth it. All I'm doing is raising my blood pressure or, you know, uh, squeezing out my adrenal glands or whatever I'm doing physiologically. Um, and if I talk myself through that enough and just recognize, yep, there are other drivers on the road and sometimes they do things that, that uh, I wish they wouldn't do, um, then I can get to a place uh, potentially where that won't make me angry. Also, one of the things I do in that situation sometimes is when somebody, you know, um, does something like that is I remind myself of the times that I do that. Uh, because, of course, I always have a good excuse, but when they do it, well, you know, they're a bad guy. Uh, so I like to remind myself that I've rarely had somebody do something to me in traffic that I probably haven't done to somebody else. Um, but, in, but it's important that we control, if we feel anger, how we deal with it. So if, for example, I'm really feeling angry uh, at a relative, uh, it's probably not the best idea to go just explode and vent at them. It's probably better if I go pound sand or something to get that out of my system and get past the point of the anger so then I can go deal with them in a more rational fashion. Um, okay. Uh, there was one more point I wanted to make and it's escaping me, but let me pause and, and ask, are there questions uh, about the verse or this approach? or any aspect to that. Okay. Uh, let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 19. 
And the verse reads, get the slide up here. The road of the lazy person is like a gate of thorns, and the path of the righteous is smooth. The road of the lazy person is like a gate of thorns, and the path of the righteous is smooth. What do you think the questions are here? Okay, Jim, thank you. How does lazy relate to righteous? Yeah, lazy is not the opposite of righteous. And generally speaking, the verses juxtapose things that are opposites. So what's up with that? Those two are not opposites of each other. Good question. Good question. What else? Ah, doesn't the lazy path seem like an easy path? Yes, it definitely could. Definitely could. Good. And are the righteous diligent? Uh, I'm guessing, Janine, that you pulled diligent from a slightly different translation than the one that I'm using. Am I guessing correctly that it says the path of the righteous is diligent? Um, just want to make sure I understand. Uh, and uh, the righteous path difficult? Well, that's, well, that's a good question. Is the righteous path difficult? Uh, I think we'll cover that in this. And Linda, uh, you said what road and what is the gate? Good. So what, what, what's this with the gate of thorns? What's that about? Um, and what is the road of the lazy person? Um, and so, uh, yes, uh, Prescott, I'm assuming, uh, well, one of the Rays wrote, I don't do yard work at my cottage and thorns line the path at the door. Um, good. Plan laid out for the righteous path, and where do these roads lead? Very good. Uh, Janine, thanks. You're trying to make a link between the lazy and the righteous, so are the righteous considered diligent? Ah, good question. Okay, now I understand. Uh, and yes, we'll get to that. Okay, Prescott. And yes, define smooth for the righteous. Very good. Why, why did King Solomon use the word smooth here? That's kind of an unusual word. Um, and uh, okay. All right. And, and Jerry, <laughs> he's admitting to being lazy. Well, thorns grow... Uh, all over the place, and uh, so I don't want to, to extrapolate the verse to the wrong uh, wrong spot. So, good questions, excellent questions, uh, and one of the keys uh, and one of the first questions that Rabbi Moskowitz raised, uh, Jim was I think the one you raised. The opposite of lazy is not righteous. The opposite of lazy would be energetic. So we don't have opposites here. So what's King Solomon getting at? And Rabbi Moskowitz said, you'll note that it's talking about the path of the lazy and the path of the righteous. It's not talking about the lazy and the righteous, but the path of each of them, which means that we're not talking about results, but rather means to an end. For example, a person has to go to work to make a living. Okay? A person has to go to school to get a degree. These are all means to an end. So what this means, if you think about a gate of thorns, you know, and getting through a gate of thorns, 
He's suggesting this means that to a lazy person, the means are total pain and torture, while to the wise person, the means are smooth. And what's the difference here? The lazy person usually wants the results, but he wants to skip the means. You know, give me the college degree, but I'd rather not have to put in the four years. Or give me the bumper crop, but I really don't want to have to sow my field. And so in his mind, there are two things. In reality, he knows that he needs the means in order to get the result, but emotionally, unconsciously, he thinks that it's, it's unjust for him that he has to use the means. I mean, in his view, the right and correct thing is that the world should give him results without having to go through the means. You know, isn't he entitled to just have it all on an easy platter? So, if you think about that mindset, then when the lazy person actually works, he's in terrible conflict about it because he feels that this shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't have to do this. It's not fair. So he's in a lot of conflict. And that conflict is like a gate of thorns. He's constantly in turmoil. But an intelligent person who accepts reality for what it is, he wouldn't do the means if he didn't want the result. And he accepts the reality that he has to use the means to get it. He knows there is no free lunch. And since he accepts that, he accepts reality. He accepts that he has to go through the means to get the result. He's not in that conflict. And so for him, the road is a smooth one to wherever he happens to be going. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, in that case, we'll stop here. Uh, stay tuned. I meant to check um, a scheduling issue. Uh, stay tuned to uh, the Noahide Nations Forum. Uh, I think we will have class next week. There's a possibility I may have to cancel because of a scheduling conflict. Uh, let's presume for the moment that it's on, and uh, I'll post a notice uh, on, the, uh, on the forum if it is not. So. so thank you all for joining, and I'll look forward to talking with you next time.